let us turn to the scripture reading that we have this morning, which is Genesis 46, verse 28 through 34. And I'm going to be taking the, the message from the last verse of this passage, so pay attention to that when we get there. Beginning to read at verse 28, though, in Genesis 46. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to to feed livestock. They have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation that you shall say? Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." Every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. The title of the message is Deplorables, Uncool Shepherds. Uh, We have had in our recent political history a very public message which has looked upon uh, a great part of America, basically all of America, between the two coasts. There's coastal America and then there's middle America. They call it flyover country. In other words, it's country that you that you just fly over to get to the other coast, to, to, to the other place where it's really important, where culture thrives, where people uh, have uh, accomplished something. But that middle part, the part where there's so much farming in the, the city, yes, there are cities there, but they are uh, cities of, of the common, whereas we on the coast are the uncommon, We are the one percenters, the people that really count, the people that have really achieved uh, something and are more remarkable than the rest of the country. So we've had this kind of thinking that's been abroad in our country, and many people uh, explain or argue that that was the reason that one of the elections was lost in 2016, because there were enough of the deplorables that got upset about that that then they voted for the other person. Uh, We can't know that for sure, but it's certainly part of what happened at that time. But the main thing I want you to realize is that this kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that we see here in at the end of Genesis 46 is not was not uncommon in the history of the world. Here as Joseph leads his people, Jacob and Joseph lead the people down into Egypt and Joseph had told them, given them directions how to find um, the land of Goshen, which was a place of pastures, place for herding. And uh, so Jacob sent Judah ahead to find this and to set, to set, it, to set it up so that 
they could get to the right place when this big caravan reached Egypt. And um, as they as they were headed that way, then J Joseph gives them exp uh, directions on what to say when they get to Pharaoh, a strategy so that it will seem very natural and and uh, completely congruent with Pharaoh's way of thinking that they should settle in the land of Goshen. Now, uh, Goshen, it just in terms of its uh, facility or its um, its attributes, is a, a a place where it's not a desert. It's 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 more hill country, um, uh, west and south of of uh, the. Uh, uh, the capital uh, where Ramses, the pharaoh, had established his government, um, <clears throat> uh, but it was it was more distant from the capital. It was more distant from the the center of Egyptian culture, and um, the Egyptians had a real pride in what they had accomplished. And even as we look back now, from this vantage point in the 20th, 21st century, we can study things like Egyptian science and Egyptian medicine. They were, they were the most sophisticated culture or one of the most sophisticated cultures in the whole uh, center of civilization at that time. And in fact, when Rome became Rome, Greece and Rome were certainly other centers, but Egypt held its own. And that they had, they, they, in terms of the achievements of mankind, they really celebrated the accomplishments that they'd made: mathematics, science, uh, religion, and that sort of thing. We know that uh, Joseph married the daughter of one of the high priests of Egypt, Aseneth was her name. And uh, but uh, rather than getting any hint that Aseneth was bored with Joseph or that she did not see the genius of Hebrew religion. It seems like she was completely congruent and, uh, and led to the blessing of the, these two sons of Joseph that, that uh, 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 in the end obtained an equal proportion in terms of the land of Israel when that was divided up later. They, they obtained an equal portion with all of the other sons of Jacob. They receiving, Joseph receiving a double portion, both the Joseph's portion and then the portion that would have gone to Levi had Levi inherited a physical land. And so <clears throat> when they moved to this, this land of Goshen, um, it was, first of all, it was a country that was a great blessing to Israel because it was a place for herding flocks cattle and that sort of thing. That's what they were used to. So they had to change nothing in order to adapt to that land. But then also it was distant from the capital in terms of some distance at least. <coughs> and uh, <clears throat> and uh, living in Goshen, they were geographically insulated to some degree from the core of Egyptian culture. So they could, as Israelites, live there and develop their culture which came from the Lord in a way that they would not have been able to if they lived in the middle of the capital city or in the suburbs or something like that. And so there are many blessings associated with Goshen. The, the Bible makes a great deal out of their uh, moving to that portion, to that land, to that area, without all, explaining all of these attendant reasons. But we see that 
Uh, Israel was supposed to cultivate itself and become a distinct nation, a nation of the living God. The kingdom of God, if you will, upon this earth at that time. And uh, it was going to be much easier to do that in Goshen than it would be even back in Canaan, where, as I've said in past sermons on this, they would have elicited the jealousy of the Canaanites, these Canaanite neighbors that they would have had there. When Israel came back into Israel, they were a strong nation. They had the numbers now or then that they didn't have earlier. And so God had, as it were, put them in an incubator in Egypt. The very opposite of what you might think would be logical. God put them in the midst of the strongest nation in the world, but he gave the strongest nation of the world and its leader, Pharaoh, a, a great mentality, a friendship, or an openness to Israel. How did he do that? Well, through this famine, through elevating Joseph, through showing Joseph was such a, a wise man that Joseph enabled Egypt to thrive as a nation even in the midst of this famine because of the preparations that they had made in the seven years of plenty. And so God in his providence worked all of these things out. And a, a large part of the uh, puzzle, if you will, or the combination uh, to this prosperity was them going to Egypt and living in, in this foreign land but being able to develop themselves in the relative safety of the strongest nation in the world at that time. But then we come to verse 46, and we, we see the, the first point of the sermon, because as jo Joseph is explaining to his people about why they need to go to Goshen, why they need to speak this way to Pharaoh, he said he gives the, the bottom line principle there at the end. He says, for or because... Every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So in other words, this was a part of Egypt that was in low esteem. They didn't esteem shepherds. They didn't, they didn't esteem the land that shepherds would cultivate and, uh, and develop. And so anybody that was a shepherd, they, they would hold in low esteem. They basically would leave them alone. Nobody wanted to go there. It's like... Uh, like people are from Rhode Island in Connecticut, moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Columbus, Ohio, is the last thing in their minds. And so God, God is so sovereign and so omnipotent in His wisdom that He is able He is able to use all of these differences that He cultivates in the hearts and minds of men. Men think they're doing what they want to do, and when they rebel against God, they think that their rebellion is perfect. And it's very uh, sophisticated in its rebelliousness. And yet they are doing exactly what God wants them to do. And he will use that in his own good time to develop the kingdom of God. That's what he did there with Egypt. That's what he did with Israel. That's what he did with the famines. That's what he did with Jacob and Joseph. Joseph, who was sold. And we've, we've remarked upon the chaos and the incoherence of his brothers selling him into slavery, these Bedouin uh, travelers who were going to Egypt. It seemed completely crazy, no rationale whatsoever, and yet it was exactly what God had predetermined. It was part of the foreordination of the living God, and now we see it all work out. Now we see Israel in the crucible, uh, in the test tube, as you were, uh, growing from small things to great things within a matter of a couple generations of 
uh, fathers, mothers, and their children. And so it's an amazing thing. But one of the things that God used was the contempt of mankind. The contempt of mankind. Joseph said, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, one of the most amazing things, when you see this, when it, when it catches in your mind, you realize one of the great secrets of the history of Christianity. Christianity has never been cool in the eyes of the world. And yet we're still here. We have one of the longest and most enduring cultural movements in the history of the world. Even though we're uncool. Even though the professors at the universities absolutely disdain our movement, our principles, our achievements. We just keep working and moving forward like the leaven in a loaf of bread, isn't it? You know, once you put, once you put yeast in something like bread, um, you can pound it down <laughs> and you know, it just keep slowly. You can't even really notice its growth, but if you leave it for a couple hours, all of a sudden it's the loaf is billowed up. It's like a magical process that's going on inside that loaf. And whether you use yeast or leaven or whatever you use, that's the way it works. That's the way the kingdom of God is. That's what Jesus said. He compared it to that when he visited us in his incarnation. And so here we see this amazing thing happening in, in Egypt and, and uh, with Israel there in its midst. So first of all, we look at the condemnation, first point, and... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, we see the kind of ignorance and prejudice that this verse, verse 34, represents. Um, uh, it, uh, it kind of uh, binds the proud in, in its uh, ideas. Now, if you, looked at, if you looked at shepherds at that time, is there any reason why that the shepherds should be an abomination to the, to the Egyptians? I mean, yes, they were different than the university professors and from the, the, uh, the, uh, the physicians of Egypt and the magicians of Egypt. They, they were different. But did they not, uh, did, did not even the magicians and the priests, did they not uh, need the food that the shepherds provided? Did they not eat of the fruit of the shepherds uh, every day of their lives? Yes, 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 and more yeses. Why then should you run one group of people down. What, what, what's the logic of that? Well, you see, if you run one group of people down, if you're in the place, if you're in the position where you can run a whole group of people down and say they're an abomination, what does it do for you? Does it not give you the sense that you are superior to them? Does it not, in a sense, inflate your position over them? That's the genesis of this whole, uh, this whole enterprise. That's why people do it. That's why, that's why uh, Hillary called most of America deplorables. It's nothing other than a psychological game whereby you inflate yourself, you puff yourself up, and you try to deflate everyone else. Even though uh, the, the, the creational way to look at it, the godly way to look at it, is that we're all different. And we ought to celebrate our differences. We ought to celebrate those people that enjoy taking care of flocks and 
working up food. And then we ought to celebrate people that are gifted in other intellectual pursuits like medicine or construction, architecture, and these kinds of things. But you only, you only really respect the gifts of others and see the beauty in others if you have a creational view of the universe, of the creation. Because then you see it's the wise hand of God behind these things. You see how God, in the New Testament it says God gives gifts, God distributes gifts to his people. Now there he's talking about the spiritual things in the church. He's speaking specifically to the church. The New Testament. But that, that principle arises out of the Old Testament and the, uh, the, the doctrine of creation where God gave gifts in the creation. So there are six-day gifts that are creational gifts, and then there are seventh-day gifts, or gifts that he gives to the church. But the, the, the species comes out of the, the genus, the, you know, the genus and the species of the thing. And so the genus is the creational gifts, and then when you get to Paul... He's talking about the ecclesiastical gifts. But if you don't have any view of the Lord, if he's not your creator, if you're the God of everything, if, if mankind is the God of the universe, if it's the fiat of men, the breath of men, the, vo the voice of men that make things go and turn and develop and not the voice of God, then you can define your own world. And so people are doing that today. They're defining men as women and women as men. They're defining heterosexuality as, uh, as hateful and uh, homosexuality as loving. And, uh, and so that's the whole thing. It's just so helpful to understand the process and to see that this is basically a satanic enterprise. It has nothing to do with reality. It has nothing to do with the creation. And uh, uh, this is... This is uh, explained in the, in the life of Joseph. It's amazing. That's point three that we get to. Okay, second point is in the face of this prejudice, we see that God has declared that he is our shepherd. Think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Where did all of this wonder come from? From the shepherd king, from the God of the universe, who portrays himself as a shepherd. If God could portray himself as a shepherd, do you think the Egyptians were well-founded in this prejudice that they had that all shepherds were an abomination? <laughs> they, do you think that there's some soundness to that thinking? No, of course not. And then when the Lord Jesus comes, when the incarnation comes, John 10, 11 says, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. They follow me. I lead them beside the still waters. And uh, he tags on to the shepherd's psalm in Psalm 23. So here God sees the loveliness of shepherding. Um, part of the reason that I enjoy golf is just simply the, to be out in nature and see the beauty that's there. And that, that's, the shepherds really enjoyed that. Uh, the shepherds that were watching for Jesus and came to uh, honor him in his birth. At first it says that they were out in the fields enjoying God's good creation, the, the open starry sky, the beauties of nature as it was created by God. And the shepherds would be more sensitive to this than 
the man in the lab or the, the scholar in his cubicle, much more. The, the, the whole creation of the Lord would seem to open. There's, a, there's an amazing aesthetical or beautiful dimension to being a shepherd. And then when you're working with the creatures, you see how you, you can't help but see how God made them. The beauty of the different creatures, their personalities, their, the ways that they behave. And the fact that then we can, as, as people, as their sovereigns, we can, we can learn things about them and use that to help us develop them to be the most productive that they could possibly be. That is, if we are appreciative of the Good Shepherd who is the Lord, the Good Shepherd who is the Son, then we can, we can teach us something, something about the creation that we can uh, really, uh, really... Uh, enjoy and so um, uh, the only thing here that we see happen was that the Egyptians switched dictionaries you know instead of using the dictionary of the Lord which talked about the beauty of the good shepherd they for, they just created their own definitions and that's what people do today that's the most sophisticated people in the land the university professors the people with the most power They've done nothing really extraordinary other than uh, uh, usurp the ability to define words. So now we're, we're going through this process right now where if we love people, if we love things based upon what God has said, now we're supposed to be, our, our language is supposed to be hate speech. And then if we do the things and if, we, if we behave in an anti-Christian way or an anti-Christ way or a satanic way, then that's supposed to be the way of love. Except we can even see on the surface of these things how it's not loving. How, how can it be loving to take a, a young, young woman that's just finding out about her sexuality, finding out what it means to be a woman, and we, and we say, well, you, you know, you, you really were meant to be a man. And so you want to cut off your breasts or a young man uh, cut off his penis and uh, try to become a woman. And the, the, we're, our, the, the leaders of our culture, there are many doctors who have gone all the way through medical school and they are in the, in natively, they are brilliant people. And yet they are doing the most stupid, stupid anti-creational things. And then what happens to these kids? Within a year or two of these operations happening, the children are to realize what they've done existentially, and they're finding themselves in the depth of depression. And because they've been so malicious to their bodies, they find there's no way out. We're starting to see some of that testimonies of this on television and uh, on uh, the internet, where these people are coming, these kids are coming forward and saying, what did you allow these doctors to do was? Didn't you realize I was only 13 years old? I hardly knew anything about reality. And yet you encouraged me to do this radical thing to my body? This is the epitome of our civilization. And, uh, and so the, <clears throat> in the university halls, where they used to take great pride in debate, free debate between different positions, so that you'd hone your skills and, uh, and you'd find, you'd find uh, a more uh, cogent or powerful idea of truth through the debate. Now we're finding these same people 
that have become absolutely anti-free speech. And so they're causing, their, their, some of the professors are sponsoring riots wherever they, in classrooms and in auditoriums. One was, we saw that down in the Tennessee legislature just last week. Riots because something was said that they, with which they didn't agree. You see how this is, uh, this is absolutely contrary to logic, contrary to truth, contrary to, the, to finding and discovering truth in terms of the way it's ever been found. And yet this is the, the cream of our culture. It's espousing foolish ideas like this because they first turn their backs on the living God. And so the second point here is that God is our uh, God is our shepherd, and he is the source of all real wisdom, not, not Satan, uh, not Antichrist. The third point is that, uh, that every shepherd, these people that were hated, in a sense, the story tells us how every shepherd is personified in Joseph. Joseph was, quote, just a shepherd. But God imported him into this land of great wisdom, and through a couple of deft insights into famines and how, how this one was going to go, that sort of thing, Joseph, this simple shepherd, becomes the prime minister of Egypt. It's just an, one of the most astounding stories of, of history, human history. Becomes the prime minister of Egypt and is celebrated as the man of greatest wisdom. And if you disagreed with the idea that Joseph was the man of greatest wisdom, Pharaoh would have you taken out. Because that's that's the impression that God had made in Pharaoh's brain. Whatever Pharaoh's brain said went because he was a dictator in that time. But what's the difference between Joseph and his brothers other than the hand of God? And so inside of every simple shepherd, I'm seeing here from this passage that there lurks uh, a prime minister, just depending on what God would do with our lives. And yes, many of many pagans, many unbelievers will score better than us on IQ tests. But then if they make these stupid decisions like we're seeing being made today, it doesn't help them. They they just they it's like having a, a fantastically engineered car that then you refuse to use the oil and fuel mixture in that is prescribed for the vehicle. It's not good. You know, it'll be a great car, but it, it'll sit out in front of your house because it'll be broken down because it won't run. And so all of that sleek design will go to waste. And that's what we see so much of in our society today. So our children, when we, when we nurture our children and when we train them in the ways of the Lord, we're training them like Joseph. We're training them to ascend up the scale of human society. Even though people, many people will not like them, even though they will encounter uh, aggression and disgust by people who will think that um, shepherds are an abomination to the rest of the Egyptians in our day. Despite that, they will simply by their expertise and by their ability to work with the world because they're friends with the Lord of the creation. They understand that the, the way that things are, they understand the truth of the creation. And so how can they not but prosper and be more prosperous than others of their peers? And so we see that personified in Joseph and the, uh, the story of Joseph. And, uh, and then the last point here is that 
is that shepherds uh, were uh, great and glorious lovers, not sexually so much, but uh, that too probably, but they, they were great lovers. And the way that we see personified here between Joseph and his father Jacob in verse uh, 29, we see that when they're finally united, and you know the story, you know all the drama and the emotion behind the story of how Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, that he, he saw God's hand upon him. He saw, he, he counted Joseph, that in Joseph's heart and his life, God was going to give the most blessing. But he didn't see how it was going to work out. And so when this boy of his was sold into slavery and the brothers came back and said that he'd been killed by an animal, Jacob didn't really, he didn't have the insight or the, the God had not communicated with him prophetically enough so that he would understand this about what happened to Joseph. And so he began to lose heart. He got sadder and sadder and sadder. The years ticked on. Uh, life had lost its joy. Uh, and uh, in a sense, uh, a fault of his character at that point was that he did not maintain a flame in, within his faith, but he allowed he allowed the depressions of this world, the tragedies of this world, to, to bog him down and to discourage him. But now it's all become clear. And so uh, Jacob goes, and it says when he saw his son, they just cast each other on each other's necks. In other words, they embraced, and they just hugged each other uh, so much. This is... Uh, they're playing the Masters Golf Tournament right now, and they're showing, I've seen a number of pictures in the last few days of Tiger Woods after he won the Masters uh, the first time, uh, I think it was the year 2000, around 2000, and uh, his father had groomed him to be in this position, and they just embraced, they threw, they did the same thing that Joseph and Jacob did here. They threw each other around each other's necks, and they just hugged and whispered uh, words unto each other's ears, of love and affection. And that's what we see Jacob and Joseph doing here. They just clung to each other. And Joseph understood the deep love of his father. He understood how it almost killed his father to be a part, uh, to, for his father to believe uh, the lie and the discouraging news that he had really been killed. And, and, and Jacob, as he saw the son, and he saw what God had done with his boy, he saw that the intimations of greatness that he saw in his son when the boy was just a little fellow, he saw that that had been borne out almost totally without his own nurture as a father because Joseph had been taken from him. But God had been his father. God had been his shepherd. God had nurtured him himself. And look at what he had done with the son. And so they, they, they hug. Now there's no, there's no more beautiful, in my estimation, there's no more beautiful situation than to see uh, masculine men who have a great affection for their families and for people, the people around them. I just love that. Uh, oftentimes, masculinity is disgu dis dis uh, disguised as the uh, the lonely bull in the pasture, which is only represented by the might of the bull, the strength of the bull. But here we have uh, these two wonderfully masculine characters, Joseph and Jacob. And they cast themselves upon each other, weep with emotion upon 
each other's necks because they can see the hand of God upon their lives. And it's beautiful to behold. And so in, inside every shepherd that was despised uh, was a great lover. And we see that here in verse 29. We see patience, endurance. We see a pyramid of values and love. We see sacrifice. We see long-suffering. All of this bound up in Jacob, the old patriarch, and Joseph, the young patriarch. And it's lovely to behold. <clears throat> in our day, <clears throat> the Renaissance is preferred over the thousand years of Christendom that reigned before it. In our day, the university is chosen or preferred uh, to um, the wisdom of the scriptures and the rabbis. Uh, we see how the leaders of our culture like to adorn each other with ribbons and fancy costumes and by that by those uh, adornments obtain real significance and glory. But they aren't really there because oftentimes we see how these people uh, fall all over themselves in stupidity. That's what we're seeing in our day. God has been doing that in the last 10, 20 years. He's taken the, the, the greatest wisdom in places like America and shown how it was total stupidity. Think of what happened in Afghanistan. 58 billion, was it 58 billion or 28 billion dollars worth of hard-earned military goods just left there. Now we're now we have a military shortage here in America. How stupid can you be? And yet the people who did this are proud of it and they're justifying it be, before the nation. Now only about 75, only about 25% of the people of the country are going along with it <laughs> and think, oh yeah, that was a great idea, you know. But the, the, the people that account, the people that are in power, they're, they're so busy patting each other on the backs that they can't see how utterly and abject, uh, how utterly stupid and, and, and abject ignorance they're exhibiting almost at every turn. Uh, this was one of the, this is one of the sort of crazy insights of Trump. He's not, he's not doing everything right. He's not, uh, he's not uh, 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 neo-Puritan. But the Lord gave him enough sense to just go in a, in a counterintuitive direction to the way modern society was going. And you remember, he was opposed. In his first term, he was opposed on almost every turn, and yet almost as every, every decision turned out right. And I knew as it, was, it was, as it was taking place, I knew that Trump himself was not that smart. It, was, it had to be the hand of God, just looking at the way God works in this world. We don't know what God's going to do in the future. We don't know if God's going to put his hand on Mr. Trump again, or if he, if he does that, will Mr. Trump do as well a second term as he did in the first term? There's no guarantees for these sorts of things, unless you do things obviously in, in God's way, with God's name. So we just don't know. But what we do see is the power of God to show the foolishness of men in this world, just like he did with Egypt. Uh, the shepherds were an abomination in Egypt. But what happened? God, God raised up a whole nation in their midst. They had no idea 
that that was happening. At one point, they became jealous and they tried to enslave the, uh, the, the, uh, the Israelis. They tried to put the clamps down on their growth because they could see that they were becoming a mighty people in the midst. But instead of trying to use that positively or thinking, what, what can we do creatively? What, what, how, what can we learn from this ourselves? Instead of become Jehovah worshipers, <laughs> instead of converting to true religion and then seeing what God would do with Egypt, they became jealous and they tried to incarcerate them, enslave them to the point where then God forced Israel to give this nation, this new nation up and drove them out. But before they went, God says, there's one thing I'm going to do before they leave. I'm going to take from the treasury of Egypt and I'm going to capitalize this new nation <laughs> so that they did, what they didn't work for, they're going to receive. They're going to receive, they're going to get gifts from Egypt. Satan the great Satan is going to give up all their wealth or much of their wealth and capitalize this strange people so that they can become a new nation in the land of Israel that I decreed would be planted. And so whose fiat really counted in the day in the day of the Lord? Was it the fiat of man? Was it the fiat of Pharaoh? Was it the fiat of his people who said that shepherds were an abomination? Or was it the fiat of the Lord? who said, this is my begotten son, Israel. This is my only begotten. In him, I am well pleased. We, brothers and sisters, are the recipients of the strength of the living God. And even though we are an abomination to many today, are we not a happy people? Has God not blessed us? Our Father and our God, we pray that we would appreciate thy sovereignty over us. We pray that we would opt for stupid things in terms of what the world thinks, as Paul said, for they are, are, they are truly the wisdom of God. We pray that we might esteem the things that thou dost esteem, O Lord, that we would value the things that thou dost value, that we would value thy name and the name of thine only begotten Son, that we would value th thy law and thy ways as thou didst teach these Old Testament patriarchs and their children and their children's children. Bless us, O Lord, in our foolishness, especially the foolishness of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.